Welcome everyone to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. I'm Finn Arne Jørgensen. I'm Dolly Jørgensen. And this week we have with us Raf de Bond, who's Chair of History of Science and the Environment at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. Uh, and he will talk about his book, Nature's Diplomats, Science, Internationalism and Preservation, 1920-1960, which came out with University uh, of Pittsburgh Press. I should say for full disclosure that this book came out in a series, Intersections, that I'm a co-editor for, uh, and I do not think that should keep us from having a good discussion of it. Or quite the contrary. Exactly. I hope we have a great discussion <laughs> of it. So no, we'll... no conflict of interest. <laughs> Give it over to you, Raf. Okay, uh, thanks so much, uh, Dolly and uh, Finana, for this uh, kind introduction and for having me in this, uh, this wonderful uh, book talk series. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, uh, and it's also nice uh, to see uh, all of you here, uh, although I can't actually see you. Dolly um, um, and asked me to um, talk for, let's say, more or less 15 minutes. Uh, also, without PowerPoint slides, I must admit that I feel a little bit um, naked without them, so I don't have uh, images to hide behind. Uh, so you'll be just <laughs> looking at my face, I am uh, uh, I'm afraid. Um, so maybe I can start by saying something about where I got the first idea of the book and then talk you a little bit through uh, yeah, the themes and the architecture uh, of the book. It's an actual physical book, I can show it to you. This is how it looks like. It's called uh, Nature's Diplomats. Uh, and basically the first idea I got for it um, must have been, let's say more or less 10 years ago, when I came across an, an address book in uh, the city archives of Amsterdam. And it was an address book of an insurance agent, a relatively wealthy insurance agent named Peter Gerbrand van Tienhoven. Uh, and was a man who was also um, quite involved in all kinds of uh, initiatives for, for nature protection on the national level, but also on the international level. And this, this address book had a label on the cover that said uh, international nature protection. Uh, and I, of course, I, I yeah, looked, looked through it. And what you have is basically names of people, addresses of people. And then yeah, it also showed that this address book was heavily used. Sometimes uh, names of people were crossed out. Sometimes there were little um, remarks in the margins uh, as to how this contact was, was actually used. Um, and what, what, is, what was striking, uh, I found in, uh, in this address book is that there were quite a lot of names of scientists. There were actually most of the names there were, were scientists. More in particular, it were, uh, naturalists, natural historians who, who dominated this, this address book. Uh, and that was really also in line with ideas that um, um, Vantinova had about what international nature protection was to be. He believed this, this was really to be a science. Uh, in, in one of his letters that he wrote to Harold Coolidge, and Harold Coolidge uh, was to become a major leader of the American uh, nature preservation movement, also on the, on the international level. Uh, and uh, Tinova wrote to Coolidge um, that basically uh, nature protection was to become a new science. That was, that was his ideal. It needed to be uh, scientific. Um, in these letters, 
he also elaborated on um, how he would frame really the aim of this international uh, nature protection for which he collected all those names in his um, in his address book. Uh, and I have a quote here from him that sort of uh, gives a good sense of, of how he, he wants to sell this, this uh, nature protection movement. It's once again from a letter to Kulich in, in 1933, so I'll read it out to you. So for this aim, everyone can cooperate. No national feelings separate us. Here no differences exist of politics, of philosophical views, neither of poor or rich, old or young, weak or strong, nor of the sexes. And this aim is the aim of us all, uh, the preservation of nature. And I really got, got interested in this type of framing, right? So the idea that uh, on the one hand, nature protection should be scientific, and this involved being objective, beyond being beyond ideological division, etc. And on the other hand, that it should be international uh, and rely on collaboration uh, beyond all kinds of national divisions. Uh, and of course, that's a framing that's uh, become. Um, yeah, very dominant, I think, in the way that conservation presents itself up until today. Uh, of course, it's, it all sounds very inclusive, uh, neutral in a way, cosmopolitan, universalist, you name it. Um, but of course, you, you only have to look a little bit behind the scenes uh, to see that um, yeah, the global network that men such as uh, Fantino often mobilized, amongst others through those address books, uh, was in fact very small, uh, that, their, that their ideas and their visions, etc., were, were very much shaped by very particular contexts in which they operated. Uh, and that also their strategies involved excluding people as much as it uh, um, involved uh, including people. Uh, and it's those dimensions I got interested in. So I wanted to write a history of uh, international and science-based nature protection that in a way uh, provincializes this phenomenon, situates it in the very small networks that um, were, that was driving or that were driving uh, this this movement. Uh, and the reason I think that's important is because um, I, I became convinced that being part of these small networks very much shaped the ideals and the values of those people, uh, as well as their ideas of which nature to protect and also how then to protect this nature. Um, a second reason why I think it's important is because um, despite the fact that this original context has, has changed in, in all kinds of ways, um, the choices that, that have been made in this particular context, the early 20th century, still very much echo, resonate in present day conservation. So it, it's a history that's still very much with us today. So uh, what I do in my book is, is I study this self-defined international and science-based nature protection while it was in the making, um, linking the construction of these networks with the construction of a particular vision of protection, um, also the construction of a, a particular persona, the persona of the protector, uh, and the construction of the instruments uh, that uh, had to make this nature protection work. Um, and I do so by, by focusing on a period that basically runs from the 1920s, when the first uh, nature protection societies uh, that self-defined as international were founded, 
until 1960 or so, when uh, the international nature protection movement expanded uh, exponentially in, in scale and, and scope. Uh, and then in the concluding chapter, I also look into the long-term reverberation of this early history, discussing how this history still informs uh, present. Okay, so to make all this a little bit more concrete, uh, I propose I will take you on a little uh, tour uh, through the architecture of the book. So basically there's two introducing chapters, a little bit that uh, set the scene. And then uh, there's a chapter that really discusses the networks of international nature protection in its foundational years, let's say the 1920s and the 1930s, when the first organizations were set up that uh, had international basically in their names. Right, so and that's those are relatively small organizations, civic organizations, really uh, private organizations also, uh, that have not been studied uh, that much until now. So one uh, is the International Committee for Bird Preservation, set up in 1922, still exists uh, under the name of uh, BirdLife International. Uh, there is the International Society for the Protection of the European Bison, uh, some year after in uh, 1923. And then there was an International Office for Nature Protection, set up in 1926 in Brussels, um, which in various ways is uh, the antecedent of the later uh, International Union for uh, Nature Conservation, so ICN, uh, still, still in existence today. And so, Looking into these um, relatively small-scale organizations, I, I try to get a sense of the people that are mobilized through those societies. And what you see is that geographically, it's mostly people from either the US and then in particular the east coast of the US and a few bigger European cities and then in particular capital cities of, of colonial empires. Think of London, Paris, Brussels, Amsterdam, those are really the places where we see a lot of uh, influential people in these, in these organizations. When you look into their class background, what you see is that they're usually, not always, but mostly they're relatively well off. Well off. So from the high bourgeoisie, a lot of aristocrats as well. Um, most of them are men, not exclusively once again, but uh, most of them are, and this also comes with a particular masculine aura of what conservation should be, right? It's very much associated with adventure, with expeditions, with endurance. So it's a lot of people who have been on, on travels uh, to collect birds, for instance, in, in Africa or in East Asia. Uh, and that also ties in with the intellectual background of many of them. So they have an intellectual background in natural history either professionally, because they were associated with natural history museums or zoos, or as amateurs. Many of them were uh, that wealthy that they did not need to have a profession, uh, but they often had all kinds of private collections or even menageries. So there's one figure, Jean Delacour, a very prominent figure in, in virtually all these organizations, uh, who had his own chateau and then had a private zoo there, uh, where he brought together birds and mammals from his uh, various expeditions. And I think this, this social and intellectual background is important because it has a clear impact on the focus of, of their work and of their uh, type of protection or nature protection that they promote. So uh, they really seek to protect uh, landscapes that represent 
basically the opposite of the world in which they live, right? So they live in these cosmopolitan cities, these big cities, and what they want to protect is the opposite of that, the Edenic wilderness landscapes without people. Uh, so which are then uh, described as primitive, untouched by human activity. Often these are also uh, landscapes in the colonies or in the European periphery. And they are uh, seen as remnants of a distant past in which preferably there's no humans, or if there are humans, these are uh, primitive humans, uh, natural uh, populations, hunter-gatherer populations. Those are also framed then as part of the natural landscape. Um, beyond those hunter-gatherers, there's, there's a particular interest in mammals and birds. Uh, and that then again also ties in, I think, with their social background. So uh, of course, mammals and birds are traditional objects of, of collecting and hunting. Um, and so that's that's where their, their, their natural interest, so to say, uh, has to be found. Um, and they focus very much on what is rare, right? So through hunting and collecting, they increasingly realized that some of these species were disappearing. Uh, in order to protect their collecting and hunting, they also needed to protect those, those animal species. Um, and of course, in, when you do collections of any kinds, whether it's stamps or whether it's uh, animals, what is rare becomes uh, what you what you want to have, right? Uh, you want you want to collect the things that that are um, rare, and this then later translates, I think, in this focus on uh, threatened animals, and in particular, there the focus is on species. It's not so much on ecosystems, or it's not on particular phenomena such as migrations, but it's really on the protection of species. And I, I think that also is related to their background in natural history, of course, where the species was until definitely the early 20th century, the central category with which zoos and, and, and natural history museums would, would work. Okay, so uh, after having sketched out, let's say these networks in, in the three following chapters, then I look basically into the instruments that this group or this network developed to protect these, these landscapes and these threatened uh, animals. And I basically focus on three instruments uh, by looking at three societies. Uh, so in the first of these chapters, uh, I focus on um, the International Committee for Bird Preservation and its role in uh, negotiating the International Convention for the Protection of Birds. Uh, this these negotiations took a very long time from the 30s until uh, 1950. Um, and this is really one of the first times that, that an international NGO become very closely involved in drafting international uh, environmental legislation. And I think this committee has been, been instrumental in, in changing thinking about bird protection uh, moving away from ideals that were very present until then. So on the one hand, humanitarian ideas, right, which wanted to focusing on the prevention of cruelty, often associated with activists groups dominated by women as well. Uh, and on the other hand, utilitarian ideas, which were associated with our agrarian interests um, and which were geared towards the uh, protection of agricultural production. And what we see here is that this uh, NGO, the International Committee, really uh, sets a different agenda, which is about maintaining the natural balance. And they also do so uh, very much in 
association with hunting groups, which also take over this language. So um, that, that's more or less the story of uh, this particular chapter. Uh, and about the rise of, of conventions as, a, as an instrument of international, um, of international protection, international nature protection. The following chapter, then, I look into another instrument, namely the stud book. Uh, and I do so by um, focusing on the International Society for the Protection of the European Bison, um, which, of course, was extinct in the wild in uh, the interwar years. And so it became bred in zoos, and they needed to have an instrument to regulate the, um, the movement of individual uh, bison from one zoo to the next. Um, what, what's interesting here, I think, is that there immediately sort of tension arose, because on the one hand, we see that through those stud books, the, the bison becomes completely dissociated from its local context, where, whether it's in, in Amsterdam or in Berlin, doesn't really matter. Um, and it's, it's also necessary to dissociate the bison from this local context in order to uh, enable an international circulation. But on the other hand, we also see that uh, this scheme also simulated the regional and national symbolism of the bison, uh, in particular among Polish nationalists and among the German uh, national socialists who, who dominated this international society. So it, it's also interesting to see how this nationalism gets back in uh, to the back door, uh, if you will, also in those international societies. And then the third instrument I look into are uh, protected areas. Uh, and I do so by focusing on, on one protected uh, area, in particular the Albert National Park in the Belgian Congo, which was established in 1925, basically at the instigation of the, of the same network behind uh, the International Office for the Protection of Nature in Brussels. Uh, it's also no coincidence that the first director of the park was also the director of this international office. And so uh, this national park is also defended very much with an internationalist rhetoric, represented as an international laboratory, a place for global science where pristine nature could be studied by scientists from all over the world. Uh, and this representation also had consequences for how the park was managed, who had access to the park. So the idea was that scientists could come from all over the world, but um, tourist, tourism presence was limited. And more importantly, also the local inhabitants were evicted from the park and they no longer would have access. Uh, in order to make this a real wilderness, right? The idea was a real wilderness can have foreign scientists, but it can't have local uh, populations that uh, live there. Uh, and this would also become a model for national parks in other imperial contexts, notably in French and the Dutch uh, empires. Uh, and then moving from there, uh, there's two more chapters uh, that look really into post-war developments. So there's one chapter that looks into the institutional developments across the Second World War, um, exploring how um, basically these, these pre-war networks then give way to new institutions, uh, in particular this International Union for the Protection of Nature, the, the present-day IUCN, which was founded in, in 48. And unlike much of the existing literature, I dare stress that there's, this is not so much a new beginning, that foreshadows sort of environmental revolution of the 1970s, but rather a restoration of these old networks and interests, that they really live on in various ways. 
Um, and then in the final chapter, uh, I look into the scientific developments in the context of this IUCN, and, particularly, and in particular the rise of ecology, um, which became a sort of presumed universal guideline for doing nature protection. Uh, and my argument there in this chapter is really that when, when you look at concrete projects on the ground, what we see is that, in fact, ecology meant very different things to different people and it's very context dependent and basically it depends on where you are. Uh, and I look into three different places. So in North Africa, it was mostly used to legitimize very interventionist utilitarian projects uh, to make the desert bloom, to make the desert uh, into a... Um, agricultural lands, really. In Europe, it led to a focus on, let's say, traditional cultural landscapes, such as heathland and moorland, which were uh, conceptualized as, as valuable forms of semi-nature. Uh, and then in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, projects continue to focus really on the maintenance of this pristine wilderness, uh, seemingly devoid of, of human influence. So once again, I think this this illustrates the context dependency of what is international and science-based uh, conservation. Uh, and then the final, final chapter uh, is then really about the long-term continuities of these early uh, 20th century developments, right? So I think that uh, the ideas and practices, but also the self-conception of what international conservation should be in various ways echoes in what came after 1960, up until today, really, right? Uh, in, in various ways, I think in one way, and despite all kinds of attempts to overcome this, what we see is continuities in the networks. There's still a sort of asymmetry between North and South. There's still a diminishing, but also still real gender inequity in international conservation. And there's still very much a dominance of natural science frameworks uh, with only limited input from social scientists or economists, uh, anthropologists, etc., um, and there have been all kinds of attempts to overcome this, but uh, it's only these, these have only partially worked. Um, we also see a continuity in the, the preferred instruments of international conservation, so protected areas, international conventions, stud books, red lists would be another invention of the 1920s and 1930s that still is very. Uh, much dominant in uh, international conservation today. Uh, and then finally, uh, despite attempts to widen the focus be beyond uh, these wilderness Edens and beyond charismatic mammals and birds, for instance, by, by asking attention for plants and invertebrates or to focus on urban environments, etc., we see that also here, the old imageries uh, still largely uh, dominate. But in brief, I, I think that uh, international conservation um, continues to be shaped very much by the context of the 1920s and 1930s. Um, and I think this is maybe also where history can be helpful, uh, because it also shows that maybe things could have been different. Uh, and thus, it might also help us to think how we might try to escape some of the constrictions of the past that are still there in, in present day conservation. Okay. I've talked for too long already, uh, so I'll, I'll leave it there and I look forward uh, to the questions you might have. Thank you for this introduction, Raf, to your book. This sounds great. Um, one of the things that struck me when you first started was about your particular source that got you interested, right? This um, uh, address book. And of course, then I was thinking about the fact that 
no historian of the future, if they're using our time period, is going to have an address book um, to to look at because, right, we have all of our contacts and our email programs and our and our phones, and those will just go away. I mean, they they just disappear unless you happen to have kept your device and it got frozen and it somehow didn't lose its memory um, between now and then. Um, so I was wondering about the the kind of sources that you used for this uh study and how those sources came to be things that were saved um and does that shape then whose story you're able to tell in this particular book yeah uh, uh thanks uh, uh and of course the the answer to the question to the last question is yes <laughs> of course it shapes uh, the, the the type of story you're able to tell um, yes, maybe a little bit on, on which sources I use. So um, the, the thing with these small societies is that they don't have archives of their own, or, or at least not, not that I could find. Um, they were often underfunded, they were relatively small, uh, and the ones that do exist still have just thrown away <laughs> their material. Uh, because they couldn't afford an archivist or uh, for, for those, those type of practical reasons. Um, that being said, I think there's still quite a lot of uh, archival material available, either because uh, individuals have uh, personal archives. So I worked, for instance, with the Tino of an archive, and Julian Huxley's uh, archives are great. Uh, there's Roger Heim, a French. Uh, a preservationist who uh, played an important role in the 1950s, uh, Harold Coolidge. So there's, there's quite a few individuals who have personal archives. And then there's a few institutions who worked together with those uh, organizations I discussed that also have uh, quite extensive archives. So for instance, I worked quite a bit in the UNESCO archives. Um, who were partially the uh, fundraisers for uh, IOCN in the early days. So um, there's also quite some material there. Um, now, of course, um, and, and what, what do you find in those archives? So there's, there's been a lot of correspondence, uh, which I think is, is great. Uh, it's also, as you said, it's a time period in which people write endless <laughs> numbers of letters. Uh, the, the mail comes <laughs> Two times a day even so there, there's there's quite a bit of, of material there um then there's a lot of yeah gray literature all kinds of meeting reports that were then copied and circulated you often find the same uh, meeting reports in those various personal archives then um newspaper cuttings um uh, folders they made as organizations those, those type of things are usually preserved um, and all kinds of lists um, and so uh, for instance Tienhoven is a good example so he, he kept these address books he, he made all kinds of lists so he, he was constantly in a way shaping this network and creating this network and for this he kept all kinds of lists so for instance of zoos that were um, run in a scientific way or of um, um, people he might uh, might want to work with or of organizations active in a particular field etc and those particularly when you're interested in doing some network analysis those are those are all interesting 
Uh, now, of course, there's also blank spots within those uh, sources. Um, it's um, sources that, um, because they, they had ambitions across the world, of course, um, but it's very much within, let's say, this European American network. Um, and if you want to hear voices, let's say, from the rest of the world where they also have ambitions, um, it's often more indirectly that you find that you come across these voices in, um, uh, in these archives. This being said, it's also a period when, um, apart from a few exceptions, uh, it was mostly about planning what they would want to do uh, in the world maybe more than getting real stuff done on the ground. So uh, also that's, uh, that makes it that there is also little uh, exchange with, for instance, uh, people in Africa or, or um, uh, Asia. Um, so um, what is also interesting uh, when you talk about silences, I, I find a few letters, and that also speaks in, I, I think to the, to the colonial context of these of these archives. For instance, I, I came across this one letter, um, which um, one of the leaders of IFCN was writing to the um, colonial officer of uh, Rwanda, Rundi, um, talking about uh, national parks, and the um, the letter started. Please do not keep this in the official. Uh, archive, uh, and then he sort of also explained why, because he didn't want, uh, if these were handed over to the uh, uh, African uh, governments after independence, uh, he didn't want <laughs> this confirmation, these, this information to be available for uh, these new these new African governments. So you see also how some uh, yeah some silences. I mean, this this one was preserved, but probably a lot a lot of other. Um, letters uh, were not preserved, but of course, yeah. Then you can use the few hints you have also to uh, indicate how those silences were. Uh, so the other the other thing I was wondering about in that introduction is you get the beginning of the story, you know, in the nineteen twenties and thirties is where this rises up, and I've seen that in in my own uh, work, like when I wrote about muskox and the beaver um, for my book those both are arising in that same context so i was wondering if you have some thoughts about why the interwar period why after world war one this becomes a thing for people to do um, this international focus and nature protection coming together because you had you did have nature protection before that um, but there seems to be some some shift in an interwar period. So I was wondering about your thoughts. Why? Yeah, thanks. It's a very good question. It's also a, a complicated question because you might expect otherwise, right? So I guess the interwar years are not known as the high point of internationalism. Uh, so if you would situate it, it would be rather the late 19th century or something. Um, I also think um, in a way the the first initiatives were before the first world war so there were a few attempts to have these international uh, organizations uh, to get them from of the ground in the 1910s 
but then yeah the first world war came and sort of um they had to start from scratch all over again um i think um uh, i'm i'm not entirely sure whether why um the interwar years would be the the period um but i think or at least the the people i look into have this sense I think it's partially has to do with the late colonial period, with the sense that there is, um, or, or that there, there is a, a sense of of uh, loss of habitats and and species in the colonies, and there's also the sense that um, the colonies belong not just to individual countries but to the civilized world, right? And I think much of these organizations that refer to themselves as international were interested in sort of European stewardship of certain parts of the world uh, or, or European slash American stewardship of, of those parts of the world. Um, and I, yes, I guess that that was a particular late colonial uh, thing um that characterizes much of these of these organizations and that maybe um came up first in in, in the interwar years this 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 idea or, or at least to that extent um and um i also think uh, some of the first initiatives uh, that existed let's say from the 19th century which were more uh on a sort of national basis. Um, also there, increasingly people saw that they didn't work because you've had, for instance, if you did bird protection, your birds would fly, uh, fly away and, and don't come back in some cases. Um, and so I guess also there, there was, um, if you would have these, these late 19th century national societies, um, they they had become relatively established by the interwar years, and they of course were in in conversation, and increasingly they would um, 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 feed into let's say these international organizations because they largely build also on what was already done on a national level. Uh, so in in a sense, it's also maybe logical that those international uh, associations come later and can build them on let's say twenty years of experience or thirty years experience of national societies. That doesn't completely explain why the 1920s exactly, but it might give a few clues uh, uh, yeah, as to the particular context in which in, in which they arose. Well, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think those, those kind of network building and connections, um, there's also, of course, technologies um, that are connecting people uh, more quickly, um, you know, that have become, that are, continuing to, to push people together, you know, to make this globalization, as you're pointing out, um, and that kind of late colonialism notions certainly play into that. So, um, Anna Elizabeth, you had a comment, I'll unmute you. Okay, hey, so fascinating to hear your presentation. I've read uh, quite a lot of your work, especially stations in the field and various articles. And um, I think that one of the things that you said about like not finding uh, 
people from wherever outside of Europe and North America, I saw this fascinating video made by Colombian ornithologists just recently. And what they did was that they redid Chapman's travel to Colombia in 1911, and they did exactly walk in his shoes and then regathered information about the birds there. And another thing, just a little um, anecdote about um, uh, uh, Gilbert, uh, the leader of the, um, what's his name again? Uh, um, the, the, one, the one who led the, the Protection International Committee for the Protection of Birds in 1922. What's interesting that he came to Stavanger in 1925, um, he was, uh, and that was all because of connections, of course. So this one guy from Stavanger, rich fabric factory owner had gone to New York, had met him, invited him. He came as an extension of the International Congress of Ornithology that they all went to uh, in different years. And it like, it made a, a difference. And he talked about protection of birds in 1925. And I think that was very important for this local protection of birds. Um, yeah, but I really, really enjoy your work, and this is a great presentation. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much, Anna. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's something to, to comment on there other than this. Well, this network building, right, is a good example of how, well, these people had a Rolodex or, or an address book of people and that you might meet them at conferences. So this kind of Congress conference Thing might be somewhere that those connections are made and um, yeah, kept up because you'd go over and over again. I mean, we yeah, still do yeah. that, right? As academics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And I, I think maybe that also uh, ties maybe back to your uh, earlier question, because of course these, these international conferences uh, are also, uh, depending on the, on the discipline, late 19th century inventions. Uh, and for nature protection, they would only uh, start, let's say, around 1900 and become really established things once again in the uh, interwar years. So also there, let's say, the infrastructure plays into the, the type of uh, uh, connections that, that, that can be made. And I think the, the example you mentioned on of, of uh, Gilbert is also interesting because he's, he's, he's one of those figures, and there's a few of, of them also in the book, who are um, interesting as go-betweens, right? And, and uh, for in his case, there, there's been um, quite some complaints within the international uh, community uh, because he, uh, he tried to be a sort of connector between the American scene and the European scene, um, but he, uh, he didn't speak that many languages, right? So, uh, and um, also he, he, he came to Europe a few times, but uh, not, not that often. And in what we see in this international um, uh, society for, for bird migration is that in the end you would have basically an American and a European group that hardly talk to each other, that also discuss different types of birds. And it was me mostly mapping on also two types of uh, flyways of birds. So in that sense, uh, it's also interesting that that international uh, is, is, or that what ties those groups together or what ties those individuals together is conferences and, uh, I don't know, 
human go-betweens, but also sometimes uh, uh, animal go-betweens, right? So it's the people who have to do with the same birds who feel that they should talk. Uh, and maybe uh, the American birds are simply not that interesting <laughs> for uh, Europeans who would rather want to talk to uh, people in Africa who uh, where, where their birds migrate. So you see also how those networks are shaped in various ways and that there's humans, but also non-human uh, actors involved. So I wanted to ask uh, about these networks, actually, and you kind of started on that, but I think there might be something more to say about, you know, the cases you describe are in and of themselves in a way, not unknown cases, you know, these, these are fairly familiar, but then there's something that ties them together, both in the way you write about them, but also, I mean, your argument is that this is something that was going on, there was something that, that tied them together, connected them in also the interwar period. Uh, and could you say something more about uh, the networkness of these networks? How did they function? What made them into networks? Because, I mean, we use the word in different ways. I mean, one is kind of this informal, like, well, you know someone, you meet someone in particular settings to do networking. But networks can also be quite formal, kind of institutional things. Mm -hmm. So was there some development there? Is there a center periphery, periphery dimension to these networks and so on? I think particularly thinking about your use of diplomats mm. then in your title and how does that relate to the network? Yeah, okay, thanks. Uh, yeah, yeah, so two very good questions. Um, maybe I'll start out with the diplomats. Um, so um, the I, I used the term because um, so the, the, of course, the people in those networks, there's a few who were actually diplomats, right? In the, in the actual sense of the word, but most, most were not. Um, but I use the term for several reasons. One is because they uh, represent something which is not a nation state in this case, but uh, a particular type of, of nature. And they also make a claim to represent, to, to be the spokesperson of threatened animals, for instance. Uh, and all, the second reason why I chose the term um, in, metaphorically is because they also um, act in, in diplomatic ways, right? They, they neg negotiate, they um, um, speak on behalf of, of this, this entity. Uh, and they have certain ideas of genteel conduct of how to behave in, in these conference settings, for instance, that, that very much resemble uh, the diplomatic uh, scene. So that's, that's where the, um, where the, the uh, reference to, to diplomats comes from. Uh, then as to the networks, um, is, is there a sort of development of what networks means over, over time? Uh, yes, I think so. Um, what I try to stress throughout the book is um, basically the role they see for themselves. I called it gentleman experts, which is um, they find it very important that they speak with expertise on certain topics, that they know that they uh, know the signs in a way of natural history uh, firsthand, that they do collections, etc. And uh, basically, their organizations 
very much reflect this idea. Okay, we are here among experts. We're on. Uh, we're not politicians. We're um, objectively studying nature and then giving advice on how to how to run things. Um, and but they of course also wanted to be heard by politicians. But what you see is that they use very informal routes to influence decision making. Right, so they're not very they're not part of institutionalized um, expert groups or um, I don't know um, institutionalized government advice. They rather write a letter to the minister of colonies and say, "Well, we would want a bigger uh, national park." Uh, and of course, you can only do that in a in a particular time when there's a relatively small elite that can talk to each other in, in that way, because otherwise it wouldn't work. And so also you see that, particularly after the Second World War, there's more of an institutionalization of those networks. But that being said, uh, also quite a lot of these old ways of doing things, seeing each other at dinner parties, writing each other letters where you ask particular favors, um, remains very much part of what some organizations, notably, for instance, also ICN, uh, continues to do until well into the second half of the, of the 20th century. So I think these, these informal networks where uh, indeed of, of conferences, of dinner parties, uh, etc., that those are, are really uh, important to understand how they, they try to exert uh, influence. Uh, for instance, one, one thing I noticed is uh, in, in many of the letters, they write of the friends of the movement, right? And then friends of the movement are befriended politicians or um, business leaders, etc., who they can then mobilize to, to do things or befriended journalists. Um, and so, yeah, so all this is not very institutionalized, right? Uh, and it's it's those type of, of largely informal uh, networks that I and and how they are established that I also focus on in in the book. Now, was this model, this way of doing things of networking, was that challenged in any significant ways? Um, yes. Um, um, Yes, I think that there's um, it, it was challenged in all kinds of ways, I would say. Um, I mean, of course, there's there's uh, um, I guess there's a lot of friction also that I try to describe in the book, uh, partially is because there's people with competing <laughs> networks, right, or, or with competing um, visions uh, who um, yeah, or have, have a competing organization. At some point, there was something called I don't know, Global Friends of 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 of, uh, of nature, uh, and and then, yeah, only one can really represent the world, the world. So then there's there's those 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 compete, but those would work on on, on in a relatively similar way. Also, they they would work through those informal networks. I think. Um, what you see rising, of course, in the second half of the 20th century is um, 
on the one hand, there's, there's groups who feel excluded from these networks and who feel that they need to be, um, um, not only that they need to be included, but also that the way these things are organized need to be formalized, right? That every country should have a representative, for instance, um, or that, um, I don't know, and for every expert, there should also be a country representative, etc. So you see that already um, coming up uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War, and that's further formalized, I would say, throughout the second half of the, of the 20th century. Um, but of course, in parallel, those more informal uh, connections remain very, very important. Uh, and sometimes and then there's again, there's complaints that although we have these formal structures, which, which should be more democratic and more transparent, et cetera, the real decisions are then taken in the corridors or elsewhere. Well, we had a comment um, from Wilco, um, who had said that in his experience working on Grand Paradiso National Park, and we talked to Wilco about his book, uh, Monastery uh, for the Ibex, earlier in our series, um, he realized that while there was a lot of talk about the centrality of scientific research to the park's mission, this really doesn't translate into a practice of coherent research. So he noted that the interwar years are characterized mainly by a focus on taxonomic complete list, completeness. So you attempt to list all the animals in the park, for example. Um, so he was curious to have a better feeling of what kind of work was done in Albert National Park and also, you know, as far as scientific work or was it some other kind of work and did that then this call for international work translate actually into practice of research on the ground? Yes, yes. Okay, yeah, no, no, very good question. Um, so let's see. So the, um, there was quite a lot of uh, work done in uh, Albert National Park um, that involved um, scientists from across the world. It's changed a bit over time. Um, it, particularly in the beginning, they managed to attract quite a lot of uh, international scientists and for a while it was mostly Belgians and then let's say in, in the 50s once again there were more um, um, people from, from, from the rest of the world. And there's also a bit of a change so in the interwar years it was really indeed um, biogeographical work, uh, taxonomies, lists of uh, which animals and which plants are to be found. Um, but later on, you see more an interest in ecology, ethology, those type of things. Uh, it was in the program relatively early on. It lasted mostly until the 40s before this really uh, got off the ground. But um, yeah, in the end, quite some work along those lines uh, have been done also on behavior uh, of uh, animals, for instance. Uh, there, there's, there's a few examples there. Uh, and and by very different times. So I'm, I'm thinking, for instance, Heine Hedegaard, the, the Swiss uh, zoo director, did quite influential work on animal behavior in the Albert National Park in the, in the late 40s. Or there were um, uh, works on succession ecology that were, were set up in the same time period. Um, so yes, um, of course, um, and I think uh, that's true for, for many of those cases, let's say that the, 
um, the rhetoric of science is often more uh, more prominent than the actual scientific work done. Also, for within the network, they also often presented themselves as scientists or as as uh, defending the case of science, whereas in fact they were insurance agents with an interest for natural history or something. Uh, so there, there is definitely a bit of an inflation in the, uh, of the term. But for the case of the Albert National Park, I also think that there, there's, there was some substance at least, and increasingly so uh, over time. All right. Uh, Greg, Della, you have a question, so I'll give it over to you. All right. Well, well, thank you. I'm really finding this very interesting. I actually have a million questions and a million comments, but just to, to keep it to one, um, this question about um, scientific networks, I was thinking of uh, the New York Zoological Society, also known as the Bronx Zoo, later the Wildlife Conservation Society. They very early, and I would say probably in the late teens and early 20s, started establishing research um, facilities, and they would have these all over the world. And therefore, those became sort of a network building thing where, you know, the scientific community would go into these areas, whether it was uh, Central America, South America, Asia, even later in Africa. And that would become sort of the springboard where they would get access to local networks, become interested in local questions, and then sort of become experts on the field. And I'm wondering if other zoological societies in Europe and other parts of the world did a similar thing, and if that also became... Um, kind of a springboard for them to get involved into more localized questions and and not just sort of the big ones like national parks, but even in smaller ones and looking for those um, non-charismatic uh, species that often sort of fly under the radar because they're not on the television specials and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, a, a wide-ranging uh, question. So uh, indeed the, the uh, New York Zoological Society also features uh, quite prominently in the book because many of the people there would then again also uh, have close contacts with, for instance, the people in Europe. Um, and there was also the sense among many of the Europeans that uh, there was quite some money <laughs> on, on the American side. So they also all, all tried to have uh, American money. So for instance, the uh, New York Zoological Society was involved in the um, protection of the European bison as well, um, because of course they had experience with the American bison. Um, and then, uh, yeah, there was quite some discussion or, or friction between the Polish and the uh, uh, German breeders because they both wanted to have a good contact with the Americans and they both wanted to uh, get access to American money. Um, were there um, um, equivalents in uh, Europe? Um, there were a few, I think, that became important. I think uh, there's certainly, of course, the London Zoological Society, um, which uh, in a way was maybe more imperial than international uh, in the sense that it, its uh, focus was the British Empire. Um, and um, it's also something I touch upon uh, in the book that there were quite some frictions between, let's say, the British conservationists and the conservationists in continental Europe. Uh, so the, the people in continental Europe tried to get uh, um, um, an, an organization that would cover basically 
well, what they saw as international uh, conservation and the British really didn't want to be that involved and and it was notably the London Zoological Society that was very prominent on the on the British side. Um, but they they also uh, of course did did work uh, well notably in in the, the British colonies. Um, and then uh, for the post-war period, also the Frankfurt Zoological Society, notably with Bernard Jimek, became very influential uh, for work, for instance, in the Serengeti. Um, so these zoological societies definitely uh, um, mattered. Um, I think also maybe maybe another uh, good example is so this this international office I talked about. So basically, in origin, that's a merger of uh, three societies, uh, a Dutch, a Belgian, and a French society. Uh, and the Belgian was called, I think, if I remember correctly, the uh, society, the zoological society for the Belgian Congo. So in, in essence, they were zoological societies and they were colonial societies. And so, in, so this first international office was basically a merger of three colonial uh, zoological societies. So, uh, yes, I'm, I'm yeah. not sure whether I've... Yeah, and I, I think that um, they did have, because I think the other part of Gregory's question was that they, they did have like field stations, you know, they, they would have regular places that they went to go do research, well, like Albert National Park, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so these guys would go all meet there. Um, and that was kind of a standard colonial way of doing things, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, I hate to interrupt, but time <laughs> is up, so we should uh, we should close here now. So I just want to thank you, Raf, uh, so Raf for uh, talking about his book Nature's Diplomats: Science, Internationalism, and Preservation, 1920 to 1960, with the University of Pittsburgh Press this year. So thank you very much, and thank you to the audience for excellent questions. Thanks all for uh, for being here and uh, thanks for organizing. <laughs>